Amen. All right. Um, another messianic psalm, uh, Psalm 69. You may not be that familiar with these kinds of psalms. It could be argued that all the psalms are messianic, as, uh, as uh, Brandon mentioned a couple of weeks ago. Uh, all of them refer to Jesus. All of them uh, relate to Jesus in, in some ways, or in many, many ways. Um, so this morning we're going to talk about our emotions, our emotions. Um, and it's a psalm that is deeply packed with emotional elements. Um, a lot of sorrow, a lot of anguish, a lot of emotional freedom in the psalm. I'm sort of jealous of David. He is just in touch with his feelings, and he is free to speak his feelings. I, uh, I would love to be that way, more like that in my own, in my own life. Before we get started, though, I want to I talk to you a bit about this psalm and contrast it a bit with kind of how we normally respond to our life. This is a, this is a psalm that reflects a, a righteous person. David had his struggles. But David is expressing here really a summary of, uh, of his life, most likely the time when crazy King Saul was after him. King Saul tried to kill David a couple of different times and brought all kinds of trouble to David. And David was really just trying to, to do what was right, uh, to honor God, wanted God's people to do well. And Saul was jealous of David. And I, but I want to I contrast a bit what David's doing here, which is responding in a very good way to his troubles. And I want to contrast that with us and how we respond when we experience pain discomfort, trouble. And so um, I'm going to just suggest right up front, let me just get this in here because I wanted to take this opportunity. I'm not going to be in Psalm 69 for a little while here, but I want to talk to you a bit about our, our normal or actually our habitual response to our troubles. Um, I, um, we have at our house we have people who rent from us a couple of rooms. You did, if you don't know that, this is what we, we do to help pay for college. Um, I don't know what it is. The college keeps thinking we're supposed to keep paying this, this bill, so I, I, it just keeps coming. So we came up with this idea of le- l- l- renting out our rooms down below in our house. We have two rooms down there, and we have a TV room, which we call the man cave. Uh, that gives us an excuse not to keep it so tidy. So that, that kind of works uh, for many ways. It's good, good. So we have these renters, and it has been an excursion into what's called missional living. You may have heard that phrase. That may sound really romantic to you. That may sound great. I want to get involved in missional living. Please interview me before you get involved with that. Missional living includes, well, hey, you can't cook downstairs, so... Come on upstairs and cook. Yeah, there's no refrigerator downstairs, so feel free to use our fridge. Uh, oh, you need some car wash. Oh, okay. All right. Huh, what's this engine doing in my garage now? Oh, you're repairing that. Oh. And these tools and all these boxes. Huh. And who else is down there with you right now watching TV? Oh, some buddies from work. Huh. And it goes on and on. And I learn all kinds of things because these people have a life. And I've invited them, and Marianne and I have invited them into our lives. And we're experiencing missional living. 
Well, missional living contrasts with my emotional life. (laughs) I've learned a lot about my emotional life from these little people downstairs who are my sanctifying machines. (laughs) For instance, one gentleman, I remember for some reason I was getting up very early at like something like five in the morning, get, get, get something going. And so I had prepared my little French press cup of coffee, ready to go. All I needed to do was boil water, and I'm ready to go, and I'm going to have some nice, a cup of, I don't ask for much in life, a cup of coffee. So I get up about quarter to five, only to realize that my French press coffee has already been brewed and is already lukewarm. At quarter to five in the morning. Now, how am I supposed to emotionally respond to this? With charitable love. Isn't it great? I was able to serve someone even before I could even be aware of being awake. I was able to crucify myself before I could even get to have a, sup, a sip of tea or coffee this morning, right? Was I rejoicing in that news? I was wondering, who is this person? They've transgressed the ultimate commandment, thou shalt not drink my coffee before I drink my coffee. (laughs) And, um, of course, they experienced this cool exterior. But inwardly, uh, my, what's called in Galatians 5.19, the flesh. The flesh was manifesting itself. I was disturbed I was bothered. I was wondering what on earth is going on. Why am I being put out? And uh, I can be, be made aware of my flesh whenever my will is crossed. My will is crossed. Now, I notice some, many of you have young children, and you look so happy on Sunday mornings. You do. You have big, genuine smiles. Now, you're not, very, you're not very long into this parenting thing, so it's all new to you. But those veteran parents around here, you guys aren't smiling as much. Because these little kids can learn how to cross your will. Oh, you think they're cute when they're crying and they need their diaper changed, but wait until they mount an argument against you. Wait till those days. Then you're wondering, how did, how, how did you even get here? And why are you here? So, children are a means by which we learn that the flesh is functioning in our lives much more, much more, uh, it's, it's much more real than we, we imagine, the flesh. And our emotional life tells us something about our our flesh. This, the flesh is this residual part of us that's still hanging around. You, if you are a Christian, you have a new nature. You can only have one nature at a time. So you have, if you're a Christian, you have a new nature. But there's something hanging around. It's called your flesh. It's in your personality. It's in your, it's in your body. It's in your mind. It's in your emotion, emotional world. So this is the part of us that needs to be crucified. <clears throat> and that's the language Paul tells the Galatians in Galatians 5. Uh, around verse 22, he says that those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh and its passions. 
Now, the flesh, you can study it, uh, Galatians 5, 19, and uh, 20, and 21 are really where he describes the flesh. You can, throughout the New Testament, you can get other places to, uh, that will give you descriptors of the flesh. But I just want to say, setting this up, is that David here is, is expressing by divine inspirations, really good, godly emotions. And uh, unless you are super, super righteous, I want to counterbalance this a bit with the overall New Testament teaching that our emotional life tells us much of what's happening within us, how we are responding to our world. But at the same time, um, my emotions need sanctification as well. God is working there to sanctify me. And also when it comes to the flesh, um, there's another aspect to the flesh, and this is demonstrated in the book of Galatians. The flesh has a righteousness impulse as well. So if you pride yourself in religious accomplishment, if you pride yourself in, well, I don't know, the Bible said it, and I did it. If you think of yourself as one who just does God's will, and you're, you're really pretty well conformed to what the Bible says. If you actually think that, you, uh, you haven't despaired of yourself yet. You haven't come to that brokenness that Joel referred to. You are not poor in spirit, um, and you, you will probably bristle if someone criticizes you at work, if you're perceived reputation about yourself is challenged, it, you probably will respond with defensiveness. Uh, and so the, the flesh has a religious side to it as well. Uh, and it's very, very hard for someone to deny that all their righteousness is as filthy rags, to use Isaiah's description. That's, that's a hard thing for people to do. The, the Pharisees knew in Jesus' time, the Pharisees knew they were sinners. They, that really wasn't the argument. Jesus came along and said, it's, your issue is the things you think are credited to you. The things you think have account for you that mean some, something of significance in God's eyes. And he came along, Jesus said, you are like whitewashed tombs. There is nothing in you that is meriting religious, some sort of religious standing with God. And that's what drove the Pharisees crazy. You, you, you have to acknowledge our, our religious goodness. No, no. <clears throat> that's why I'm here. <laughs> that, that's the implication is they were not about to acknowledge that they needed a savior in, in that way, someone to rescue them. So I, I say all that to set this up, to say we're wrestling with the flesh in our responses. We're wrestling with idols in our responses and just by way of an introduction to this is now we're going to get into someone who is genuinely sorrowing, someone who is, um, finds himself um, in, in trouble and they have tried to do what is right. They have sought God's glory and uh, they are now experiencing intense, intense trials. That will be true for us. Yes, we are told that we will be persecuted for righteousness' sake. And, uh, and we will be blessed by God uh, for that. It's actually an evidence that God is blessing us. Um, just to sort of get into the, into the overall view, kind of the outline of Psalm 69, it's a big psalm, 
36 verses. Won't be able to cover everything about it this morning. Um, Psalm 69 really uh, is encapsulated and, and I think concentrated in verses 16, 17, and 18. And so let me just read this for you, 16, 17, and 18. Uh, and, and this is someone who is singing a, a song. This is David. It's also a prayer. Listen to this prayer. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Interesting. Redeem me, ransom me because of my enemies. The entire psalm really is a catalog of, of statements of anguish. But that encapsulates it. Draw near to my soul. I am in despair because of my enemies. Turn to me, O oh God. You are good. I have to have a sense and an, an understanding of your presence and that you are with me. You've not abandoned me. You're with me. Turn to me. Draw near to me. Throughout the psalm, when David wanted comfort, when he wanted to rely on his fellow kinsmen, his men of the same country, men of the same calling, men of the same covenant, they, they, they turned on him. They, they made up stories about him. They lied about him. He has borne a reproach meaning that he has been made the, the problem for the nation. This is David, the one who slew Goliath. This is David who longed for, for God's people to worship him well. David is now in a crisis, and he cries out for judgment. He cries out, uh, verses 20 through, through 28. He, he says, to, essentially, these Enemies of mine have merited retribution. God, David wants God's fierce anger to overtake take them. He didn't want them to share in God's salvation. Verses 22 through 28, uh, uh, line upon line, blot them out of your book of life. It's interesting, though, that David himself does not act as a means of God's judgment. He prays. He anticipates a day of judgment, but he's, he's willing to wait. <clears throat> Interesting. In, in Psalm 69, there's a movement. There's a beautiful, subtle movement. There's a lot of singular, uh, first-person singular statements. I, I. A lot of solo anguish. And then the psalm toward the end has a, has a bright ending to it. And it's in the plural. Uh, Let heaven and earth, verse 34, praise him. The seas and everything that moves in them. Ah, The whole world is now going to get caught up in, in the praise of God. This darkness will lift. Verse 35, for God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah that they may dwell there and possess it. The descendants of his servants will inherit it and those who love his name will dwell there. So, there's a, good, there's a good movement there. There's a, a, a transition in the psalm. It ends on a bright note. All right. Let me ask a question here.
Uh, how does Psalm 69 inform our prayer lives? Verse 2, David exclaims, I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. And I'm going to suggest it informs this psalm, informs our prayer life in this way. It puts away the try-hard gospel. David is done. David's smart. David's a warrior. David could uh, come up with another battle plan. He could come up with another scheme. He could come up with another strategy. He's done. There's no foothold anymore. I'm I'm outnumbered. I'm outdone. He's, uh, he's acknowledging the pain of, uh, of this betrayal. And uh, he has given up on any kind of idea that obedience should have led to a pain-free life. He's not buying in. He's saying, well, there's no more, there's no more footholds. Uh, just think of some sort of a, a well of water where there's mud sides perhaps and there's no way to climb out of this thing. What a, what a horrifying image. He is abandoned to God's will. It's funny, isn't it, how, how we resist that. Um, we gather today to bolster our faith to do God's will. Isn't that kind of one of the assumptions we have? We wanna, we've already prayed, uh, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. In, on earth as it is in heaven. Excuse me, I got upside down. Hey, we've already acknowledged that good things are happening in heaven. We're convinced of it. And, and we've already uh, actually uh, praised God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. And praise Him where? You said this already in church. Praise, the, praise Him above ye heavenly what? Your host, you've already been talking to angels in this church service. You've already talked to the heavenly host, and, and what's going on up there is good. And it's right, and it's God's will. And, and in the Lord's Prayer, we say, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We have said that to each other, and we have told angels, if you understand what I understand about how good God is and how good His will is, then you should praise Him more because you can see Him much more clearly than I can. To do God's will is something we often talk about. And I have to say, I, when my will is crossed, I am most upset. <laughs> That's what gets me. It's, it's, uh, it's an unusual thing uh, to do this for a living <laughs> and then to realize, wait, am I really that committed to doing God's will? Well, David is saying, I'm done with the try-hard gospel. I'm done with plans and strategies. I don't have a foothold anymore. How about you? The energy of your life? Planning, what's it all about? It's good to plan. It's good to be organized. It's good to want good things for your spouse, your children. But what's going on? What's all this energy about? Is it really just a try-hard gospel, the small g 
Think about that. And then this psalm introduces us not only to the try, giving up the try-hard gospel, but praying. It's hard to keep going in prayer. It's hard to keep crying out to God. It's hard to persevere in prayer. And one of the lessons in the school of prayer is that God doesn't always respond at just the first prayer request. And God's schedule is much different than ours. And David cries out in verses 3 and 4 that he's tired. He's tired of crying out. His throat is parched from crying out to God. Prayer can be fatiguing. We know what we want. We are aware of what would be good. We may be praying God's will. We may be praying according to Scripture. And we don't see results. We see darkness reigning. We see evil uh, getting its will done. And it is difficult to face the fact that things don't seem to be changing. And you know that if God wanted to, it could change in an instant, and it is not. Prayer, the reason why we avoid prayer is it introduces us directly to the God who says, I'm listening and I have my own schedule. And (laughs) would you want to hang around someone who told you that? I'll listen, but I have my own schedule to respond to you. Let's think about that. You go to your boss at work. Oh, that's interesting. Fill out a triplicate form and tell me about your troubles. And I'll respond when I want to, when it's in your best interest. And in this instant express checkout society, we say, what? I'll tell you how you're to respond. You are to respond now. Is there any other way to respond to me? And this is why we don't pray. Because we know the experience is going to be a long one. And we are an anxious group. We want answers quickly. How many of you have counted the groceries of that person in front of you in the express line? You can confess your sins here. Uh huh. And do you count bananas? Each of them or all? All right, so... All right. Praying is hard. It confronts us with the long haul of prayer itself. And then praying, how does Psalm 69 inform us in our prayer life? Well, we pray in order to find God's comfort. We're searching it out. Verses 19, 20, and 21, really interesting. You know my reproach, my shame, my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. That that happens through prayer. In other words, what we may be faintly aware of becomes more real to us when we are praying. Lord, you know this then, don't you? You You really know this. You know what I'm going through. And that experience with God comes in prayer. That it happens, that arise in your soul through prayer. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. He's telling God this. 
I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. So, we pray in order to find God's comfort. And what we want comforted is the emotion we are experiencing. God wants those emotions. Those emotions belong to us and to him, and he wants the whole of us. And the next area is, I wasn't quite happy with how this came across, but there's a place to pray unlovely emotions. This is where David prays judgment upon his enemies. I don't know if I've got that right by describing it unlovely emotions. But the impulse is simply this. I want what they've done to be exposed. And that is a reasonable request because our God is a God of justice. David, divinely inspired, sees that deception is winning. David knows that they have created his enemies a fiction that somehow David was a public threat. And David knows it was a fiction. And so he prays for God's justice and judgment. And then there's this whole area of praying as one in exile. And that starts in verse 33, where David now is beginning to, 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 to realize that there's a day coming when his people will rejoice together and the sorrow will be lifted, the darkness will be dissipated. Verse 33, for the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Many times in Israel's history, they experienced being a, a vassal state. Some other country was, was ruling over them. They were not free to be God's people. Ultimately, we were all in a vassal state in the, in the kingdom of sin. And our King Jesus comes and delivers us from being held captive to sin. And that deliverance is is not yet full, for we are still exiled. We are still aliens, to use Peter's language, in this world. And we pray as those who have not yet found our home. So let me wrap this up with just exploring a big, big subject. Uh, What brings relief when we are in pain? Or being in pain, what brings relief? Um. And I would suggest that the key is the orientation of the heart. This isn't a, uh, a panacea, meaning that you will no longer be, you will somehow be pain-free. But the orientation of the heart um, is, is really the place where pain is addressed. Um, the orientation of my heart toward our renters I could come up with all kinds of rules, right? And I have been working on some. I think, that, I think that'll help. <laughs> but, 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 you know, um, I, I tried to, to keep it a really short list. And then I realized, you know what I'm really doing with this rule book? I'm avoiding just talking to them. And I'm avoiding 
the discomfort of maybe a situation that just I got to deal with, and it might be early in the morning or at night, um, and I got to treat them as people. And okay, you wanted to hear your stereo at 10:30 at night while I was sleeping. Can I can I talk to you? Um, and it might be easier and a little, little less painful for me to point to rule number nine on the on the list. But I think that it's really an attempt to avoid pain. And it's also an attempt to avoid loving them. It doesn't mean I can't have some rules in the house. But I'm going to suggest that what really brings relief is something to do with the orientation of our hearts. And David, you can feel this in the psalm. It's very, very subtle. You can feel the movement of the psalm where he's, without a foothold, slipping in the water. And then there's a change of heart. Not that he's bitter toward God, but there's a change of heart because the heart is happier when he begins to think about how good God is. You can see it in the psalm. And he begins, this starts in verse, um, verse 16, I'd suggest. Uh, look at verse 16 again. Uh, this is really, really cool. 16, answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, and here's the phrase, turn to me. There's a heart that's worshiping his God. He, 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 his circumstances haven't, haven't changed, but something is changing inside David at that moment. I think that the task for us uh, is to say to God, Lord, I believe you will turn to me. I don't think you will, if you examine my heart and I want your glory, I don't think you would ever really abandon me. I don't think that's possible. And you will turn to me. You will. And I want it now, but I have to wait for it. The task that we have is, I believe, to plod along with Scripture and watch others in anguish and how worship began to enter their hearts. We have to plod along and find others who we can identify with. Ultimately, it's, we're going to find Jesus identifying with us plodding along and finding, finding that insight, finding that turn of heart that will make all the difference. You see, our character is being shaped in this difficult moment, and that's what we most resist. I don't want this kind of, of pain. I did not want to be sanctified this way. Another idea would be that God will provide a picture of someone with greater zeal and deeper suffering than your zeal and your suffering. That is hard to say because I know some of you have suffered. And yet in Scripture we have Christ. And as we look at our lives and then we begin to realize that these psalms are pointing to the one who did suffer, who had a right to 
to cry out to his father and say, where are you? And every emotion of his was pure and beautiful and godly and wonderful. And he on the cross was abandoned. And the father turned his face from him because the son had become Isaiah's suffering servant. And he became a reproach for his people. And he was there between heaven and earth in this no man's land we call the cross. And this picture of someone with greater zeal for God's glory and God's, God's uh, reputation, and this picture of someone suffering is actually what we are, the one we're to focus on. Hebrews 12.3 tells us directly, Consider him who endured from sinners hostility against himself. Dwell on it. Think about it. Let it become a counterbalance. My suffering feels so overwhelming to me. Uh, I'm a spiritual wimp. It just feels so overwhelming to me. The book of Hebrews tells me, Consider him, consider him, consider him, consider him, consider him, consider him, consider him until what seems overwhelming to you is now not so overwhelming. It is still there. It is still real. It is still packed with emotion. But consider him. So we, we are called to be great students of Christ in his suffering. Consider him who endured from sinners hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. I did not know. I did not know. When I was in seminary, there was this theme of persevering in ministry, of hanging in there, keeping going, hang on, you know, all this stuff. I'm this young guy. Man, ministry's fun. Ministry's cool. Ministry is awesome. I, don't, I was just like, I was like shuffling like eight inches off the ground. What is this stuff about persevering? Who's having such a hard time? What's the deal? Oh, let me, let me tell you. And uh, someone heard my thoughts. And something incredibly important came to me that I thought lightly of the cross. And in order to think more thoughtfully about the cross, God changes one's circumstances. And what happens is when you lose sight of the cross and you don't consider Jesus, you do become weary. And you do become faint-hearted. And you do feel like giving up. And then David says something very interesting. Toward the end of Psalm 69, in verses 31, um, excuse me, lost my place. All right, here it is, verse 30. I will will praise the name of God with a song. Isn't that great? Man, David's in a better place already. And look look at, toward the end of verse 30, I will magnify him with thanksgiving. And then we learn what David means by this. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. Aren't you glad? What on earth is he talking about? 
What he's saying is, if I just worship you, God, for who you are, I think you'd be more pleased than strict adherence to all the ceremonial laws. If I came in here with a really a whole bunch of good-looking oxen, and I did everything according to the law, the Levitical law, how to present my oxen and all that, you know what? It really wouldn't work at all. The only thing that really works is a heart that is interested in you, not just obedience. You see, what brings relief and when we're in pain? I think worship does. Not constant harping on being more obedient. When we're up to our neck in floodwaters of turmoil, you don't need another list of things to do from the pulpit. You need a Savior who's worth worshiping. Religious activity will just wear you out. And what's, what's quite remarkable is, we somewhat miss this, is that when Jesus offered his body to be our Savior, that was an act of worship. And Jesus was pleased to offer his body. And you know, what happened was, when he offered his body, here was the deal. You're going to suffer. And your enemies will not be judged. You will express to the world the triune God's forbearance, his willingness to withhold judgment. And you, my son, will model this. And you'll cry out, not where is your judgment, Father, but, oh, Father, you must forgive them. That's an act of worship. Jesus was worshiping the Father's wisdom. If this is what the the Father had ordained for me, then I will receive it. You see, ultimately, what helps us in our pain is to abandon ourselves to the will of God. Pleasing God becomes or takes center stage. My pain takes center stage in my life, and my flesh will make sure I I know that. But the cross is to grow bigger and bigger. Uh, And then just finally, how does Psalm 69 help us in our prayer life, or, or, or help us with our pain, excuse me? I think it helps us because we are built up through the ministry of others. David, his final picture of God's people is their worshiping in Zion, which was where the temple ultimately was, where the tabernacle was. Um, Zion is the gathering of God's people, and we're worshiping. And you have a ministry to other people who are in difficulty and turmoil and hardship. And uh, the pulpit can only do so much on a Sunday morning. But you have a ministry to build up other people. The Lord hears the needy, verse 33 of Psalm 69. The Lord will think upon and rescue the needy. The needy feel that they are ashamed and forgotten, but they are not. 
and that is your ministry. David cried out with confidence that God would help the humble and that an answer would come. And in many ways, you are modeling before other people perseverance, uh, enduring pain and suffering and hardship and trials. Others are watching you, learning from you, asking for help. They want to know if their feelings are completely off track or is it perfectly normal and human to think this. You have an important ministry. But now I want to tell you something about the gospel and then I'm done. All right. Luther, when he thought about feelings, Martin Luther, 500 years ago, he had a lot of feelings that were driven by his conscience. He was a man of very tender conscience, I believe. He believed everything his church told him. And then he bumped into the gospel and the scripture, and he became a courageous man who put his life on the line in a world where you could die very easily and quickly. And he says these things about conscience and feelings. Turn from your conscience and its feelings to Christ, who is able who is not able to deceive your heart and turn from Satan who will drive you to sin. These are liars. You should, believe, you should not believe your conscience and your feelings more than the word which the Lord who receives sinners preaches to you. You see, in many ways, we want to affirm our feelings as a place of sanctification, as part of our humanity. But there's also a place to defy your feelings, a place when you feel like you are alienated, you should be abandoned, left in a desolate place. Perhaps your sin is accusing you. And Luther says, do not. Listen to those deceivers. Listen to Christ who preaches to you, who can and will and does receive sinners. May your feelings never, ever overwhelm you and dictate to you how you should respond to life. We're here for you. The gospel, the gospel can hold you. Christ can embrace you. Christ will love you. Don't give up on that. Let's pray.